If you will, take your copies of Scripture and join me in turning to First uh, Peter chapter 4. Um, I was reminded last week at the end of the service of uh, two things in particular. Uh, one, you hear us speak of God's sovereignty a lot, uh, as I think it should be. Spoken of, sometimes we're not always certain what that means as it relates to our suffering and our hardship and our struggle and particularly our persecution. Uh, so when you hear us speak of these things, uh, just let me say when we are talking about God's sovereignty in our suffering, that we are talking about His hand being upon us, leading us into it, guiding us through it. Uh, for his purposes. It does not come by chance. It's not by mistake. He doesn't show up after the fact. It's not something that slips by him, but is specifically directed uh, and is a part of his plan of redemption. Uh, the other part of that is, is that while we sometimes can understand that, because even folks who have some understanding of who God is, uh, we don't often connect how God's love fits into that picture. Uh, and I was reminded last week uh, in our call to worship, and you may want to turn there with me for just a minute, in Psalm 56, and I'm not going to preach there, but I do want to draw our attention to it because already today uh, we have sung of God's love in regards to the fact that it keeps us forever and we are not outside of that. Uh, we have also mentioned uh, God's loving nature in our call to worship but I want you to see just how personal this is as it pertains to our suffering and our hardship and our struggle. Uh, and in that way, we won't misunderstand anything else that is said today in regards to the gospel and God's love. I want you to look there. In chapter 56, uh, verse 8, this is the psalmist speaking of God coming out of the midst of his hardship. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The psalmist in poetic form is saying, God, your love has been so rich and personal that I have not shed a tear that has gone unnoticed by you. In fact, the tears that I have shed you have kept and you remember because you care about my suffering, you care about my hardship, you care about the persecution, and you are holding those and you are keeping those and you will deal with those and we'll see even again today, you will deal with those accordingly. I don't know that we often grasp just how intimate God's love is for us. We talk about it in general terms, but I don't know that it could be expressed any more intimately than to say, I haven't shed a tear that you haven't remembered. It has not gone unnoticed, even to the point that as I was shedding them, you were catching them so that you would remember my hurts of the past and that you would deal with those things in justice accordingly. That's how much you love me. Believer, that is how much God loves you. And that is how much he is committing to 
even in the course of our struggling and suffering and strife that comes in the way of doing good for righteousness' sake. Now we'll take a look at our text, 1 Peter. Chapter 4. I received a call uh, this week from a gentleman professing Christ who was concerned about uh, the recent condition of our culture, and it's kind of been an ongoing thing, but he was talking more about what he's seeing now, uh, most especially the maligning of biblical values. And one of the concerns that was most troubling to him was the desecration of religious symbols uh, on the part of some leftist social groups in their attempt to promote their values and devalue what the Bible has to say. And the gentleman's questions were twofold. Uh, what are you as a church doing about it? Uh, and what should you be doing about it? And we had a, we had a, a, a reasonable conversation. And I encouraged him uh, to come here uh, and work with us through the remainder of our study of 1 Peter. Uh, because it reminded me that that's what we are doing now. We are, hopefully, you've made the connection, that we are learning how, we are being taught how, if you will, to think, to navigate, and to work through a season of persecution that we are in, in varying levels, uh, and persecution that will most likely come uh, at least in some of our lifetime. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we continue to look at how we are to uh, walk and live uh, between these two worlds. Uh, and in the course of that, as we saw in our confession today, proclaim the excellencies of Him who has brought us out of darkness into light. And let me qualify that and say, if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, there is one who is excellent. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, there is one gospel. There's one Lord. There's one baptism. There's one gospel. There's one hope. There's one refuge. Uh, there's one rock. Uh, there is one salvation. Uh, and it is our prayer for you today uh, that if you've not yet trusted Christ, uh, that you would, and we'll do that soon, uh, and come to uh, love him because he has loved you so much uh, that he is speaking to your heart, maybe even now, uh, regarding your relationship with him and what it means for eternity. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of time in flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. As we consider uh, this text, I want to share with you uh, our aim this morning. And it's relatively simple because the text is very pointed and it's very simple. The aim is, is for us to recognize that the fulfillment of Jesus' commandment in Matthew 18, 28, 18 through 20 is given with the understanding that it will require great costs being suffering and persecution. And along with that, we must properly be armed for the battle. That's our aim, is to recognize those two things, is that uh, Jesus has said that he is and has commissioned the church, has commissioned us as believers to go into all the world and to make disciples. That means to proclaim the gospel, to teach God's word. Uh, In fact, he says, teach all that I have commanded you. And that that in the end, as Paul has said, is the gospel. And that the gospel is um, the way to life. Uh, It is the power of God to give eternal life. And that in most cases, we need to recognize that it is going to require suffering and persecution. And when it is not, it is only by the grace of God. And even as the gentleman called me this past week, he recognized that we are in a difficult time. And I believe that that time will continue to become even more and more difficult as we've talked about. So here's how we want to approach the text this morning. First thing is to look at what the text requires of us. We looked back earlier at our um, catechism. What does God require of us to be spared uh, the wrath that we deserve because of our sin? And that is he requires faith and repentance. Not in every text, but in a lot of texts as we read, it requires something of us. And this text does require something of us as believers. And I believe that we can press that to even say uh, that it points to a great truth for unbelievers. So we want to look at that. There's one imperative in this text. uh, And then I want us to look at some motives for why this imperative becomes so important. And I don't know that I'll get all of them. You'll read the text and you will see things maybe that I haven't seen or at least that I uh, am not trying to zero in on today, but we are going to try to at least mention some of those. So let's look at the imperative. Look at what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now that's not the imperative, okay? That's not the imperative. But I do think we need to pause there because we are reminded, and we should be reminded, of the significance of Christ's suffering. Uh, We have already heard two passages, and we have sang songs this morning regarding that. His suffering is absolutely paramount and essential to the redemptive work of God. In other words, there is no redemption apart from the suffering of Christ. Apart from the suffering of Christ in the flesh, there is none. That's one of the reasons why the cross and his death on the cross was the very thing that Satan sought to stop. Think about that. He wanted Christ gone. He wanted him out of the picture, but he didn't want him out of the picture on the way of the cross. And he was okay with him dying on the cross to some degree 
if he could somehow another break him down before he got there. But he knew that essentially what he was trying to do was to get Jesus to avoid or abandon the cross. That's what he was pushing toward. That was, he tempted into that end. Uh, when we were looking at Matthew's gospel, we saw the temptations and how he was trying to get Christ to abandon righteousness and abandon the cross. Why? Because the cross, that suffering that Christ did on the flesh and the cross is absolutely essential for God's redemption. And I, I don't know all that Satan had in his mind and I don't know all that he knew and what he didn't know. I don't know that that is necessarily important. What we do know is, is that the cross is essential. And the point is that he continued to tempt Christ to abandon the cross of suffering. He even used Peter to do so. So we have Peter writing this, pointing us back to the suffering of Christ and its significance. And we have heard it throughout the letter, the significance of Christ's suffering. I'm reminded from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, that after Peter makes this great confession that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus tells him that suffering, his own suffering, his own death, is absolutely necessary and that the two go together. This is what we hear. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That word suffer is in there for a particular reason because he's going to suffer in the flesh. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I want you to catch that. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Because in just a moment, we're going to go back and we're going to point to this mind again. And then Jesus said this, and this is the part that kind of overshadows, if you will, all of this talk of suffering and persecution. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you just make note of that. Come after me, follow me cross for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul but what shall a man give in return for his soul for the son of man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done now Peter heard this and everything that Peter is writing is coming out of that context of what Jesus has said that pointed to God's work of redemption. And that's the reason that we can't abandon the cross. We can't abandon the suffering of Christ on the, in the flesh on the cross. If we abandon that, we lose redemption because redemption only comes by it. And that is redemption for all of those who will believe, all of those who will place their faith and trust in Christ, all of those who will seek to walk in repentance. 
Now, this is what this looks like, if you will, in the context of Jesus' suffering. Just listen to these verses and catch this picture. He tells his disciples, you'll be hated by all nations. The very nations that they will be sent into, they are going to be hated by. The community that we are commissioned to serve hates God. At varying levels, but Scripture is clear that they are in enmity with God. And that was one of the things the gentleman was pointing out as I talked with him on the telephone, is he saw this as a hatred toward God and a strike at God. And he was right. And at varying levels, the community that we live in will hate God, and therefore the communities that we are being sent into are God-haters, and they will and can hate us, okay? Now you're probably wondering how are we going to square with that while we are here in this community and we are called to go into this community. We're going into a community that doesn't love the church, that hates God and ultimately hates the church. The hatred will be seen and known uh, as these values collide, okay? But as I encouraged the man that I was speaking with, I said, but in humility, we will walk in that and we will serve and we will pray for and we will intercede for, as we did just a moment ago, as Booney led us in our time of intercession, uh, even for uh, our government officials who by God's providence are in the places of authority that they are in. And therefore, as we have already heard, we will submit to that authority and we will pray for them and we will intercede for them. We will do the same in this community. Why? Because that is exactly what Christ did in the world in which he came. He interceded for and he prayed for and he displayed the power of God in his humility in the way that he walked and lived. And that's the reason he wasn't understood. That's the reason the cross is not understood, but that's what we'll do nevertheless. And then Paul, in writing to the Colossians from prison, he had this to say about suffering of Christ. He said, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's in prison. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is not that anything was lacking in Christ's afflictions. That wasn't his point. What he's saying is, is I am continuing to suffer as Christ would have me suffer by the providence of God for the sake of the gospel. Because he goes on to say, for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what is central at the heart of the church is the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. And we will hear, and we know this even in our own lives, but we need to be reminded of it, uh, that apart from the proclamation of the gospel, apart from that, there is no salvation. Because we must hear it. We come to faith by hearing, and that is the reason that I'm encouraged even here today. If you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, you're hearing the gospel from beginning to end, and in that is our hope that you will come to life. You will come to life. And then Jesus speaking to his disciples, it's recorded in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. This was after he rose again. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now catch this, for fear of the Jews. Why? Well, the Jews had just put Jesus to death. Okay? 
They just put him to death. And what it says is Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Why? Well, they were afraid. And he is speaking to them, peace be with you. And that's important for us in the midst of where we are, in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our going into this world, in the midst of our proclamation of the gospel, whether that is sitting with a family member that we, we really love, we don't want to offend, but somehow or another we, we know they need to hear the gospel, or whether it is knocking on a door at random, the home of a person that you don't know, just to introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm from Oak Valley Church, uh, and I want to come here and introduce myself because I want you to know about what God is doing, what he will do, and then share the gospel. Peace. Why? We don't need to be in fear. And Jesus had said this knowing that he had told his disciples that if the religious leaders hate me and the community hates me and the world hates me, then you can expect the world to hate you. Now, all of that is a background because since, therefore, Jesus knows this, has taught this, has suffered in the flesh, here is the imperative of the text. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Thinking about what? Well, if you'll look there uh, at the end of verse 2, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. The thinking is, is that I want to accomplish the will of God. That is, that was Jesus, that, that was his focus. I want to accomplish the will of the Father. The will of the Father was that they would come to know Christ and would trust in Him and that they would would look to Him, that they would glorify Him, and in that, the Father would be glorified. How is that best done? Well, we have been looking at it. That is best done when we proclaim the excellencies of Him who has led us out of darkness and into light, walking in a spirit of humility. Peter has said, walking in a spirit of humility in the midst of this world, proclaiming the gospel, pointing people to the will of God, which in the end, the will of God has to do with our willingness First to suffer and then to live uh, in that context. I I came across this. I I wanted to share it with you because this word arm already implies that there is going to be great resistance and there is a war to be fought, a battle to be fought. So this arm is to take up arms. And it's not talking about, you know, pulling out our glocks. Uh, It's not talking about that. It's not talking about putting on our armors. Uh, spiritual armor, yes, but, but there is something here and what we are arming, what we are being armed with is the mind of Christ to accomplish the will of God at whatever expense and cost there is. So uh, we're going to, I kind of give you these two things that we can kind of think about that came out of the passage that we read when it's talking about taking up our cross. We are either going to 
we are either going to follow Christ or we are going to protect self, okay? We're either going to follow Christ or protect self or we're going to come down to, in this case, there is either going to be, uh, we're, going to, we're going to embrace sin or we're going to embrace suffering. One or the other. And we'll look at this in just a minute, but I want to give you these two pictures. But I came across this about 500 B.C. in China. Uh, Sun Tzu uh, wrote what has been the definitive work on military warfare. For those of you who have been uh, in the military, you may know this. But uh, this treatise is over 2,500 years old, and it's still used by many military leaders today. Uh, and it is not built on Christian principles, but I did find it interesting when I began to hear uh, this, uh, th this treatise on warfare. Uh, one, appear weak when you are strong and strong when you are weak. Just think about that for just a moment. Appear weak when you're strong and strong when you're weak. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. In other words, there is a recognition that we would know ourselves and, and, and know the enemy. Let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night, and when you move, fall like a thunderbolt. And then the fourth thing is that the skillful warrior attacks so that the enemy cannot defend, and he defends that the enemy cannot attack. Now, those are just basic principles of war that military leaders hold on to. Uh, so I read. Why? And how does it apply here? Well, at least here we recognize that Peter is describing what is war. He would not have used that word, arm yourselves. So what is the key thing to arm ourselves with? And he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That way of thinking is that suffering is what is necessary to bring about the redemptive work of God. And then he tells us here, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Now let's break that down for just a minute. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, look back up, if you will, in verse 18 of chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And we looked at that last week. How does it connect here? Well, what we hear Peter saying is, is that uh, suffering in the flesh for that which is right, for righteousness sake, does have a bearing on our fighting sin and temptation in our own lives. That's the reason that I put that against sin or suffering. Now, here's what he's not saying, okay? He's not saying that if we suffer, we're going to become sinless. 
And he's not saying that if we suffer, that somehow or another, just by virtue of us suffering hardship or suffering in persecution, that somehow we earn our way to Christ. It is not a means to salvation in that end. What he is saying is, is that when we come to a place where we deny ourselves and we take up the cross, and it was very clear that that meant suffering. The disciples understood that. We don't have much of a context for that other than trying to point back. But when we deny ourselves and take up the cross for suffering for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of that which is right, we are in that we are driving out sin out of our life because we are saying that this isn't about me and I'm not going to preserve myself and I'm not going to protect myself, but for righteousness sake, this is how I'm going to live, even if it means this is how I'm going to die. That's the connection that Peter was saying. Why? Well, it was important that in walking in the spirit of humility that that take place because as we suffer, if we move to self-preservation, then as Mooney pointed to just earlier when we were dealing with our confession, then that means we remain silent when we should be proclaiming the message of the gospel. And we don't go out when we should be going out. And we don't leave the comforts of our own home. We don't even leave the comforts of our own country at times for self-preservation. And all kinds of reasons can factor into us deciding that we're not going to go for fear of something And Jesus had already told his disciples, uh, you know, you you don't need to fear man. You need to fear God. And even now that you're fearful of the religious leaders, I speak peace unto you. And we didn't read the rest of that passage of Scripture. But then uh, he spoke to them and he, uh, he granted them until Pentecost. He granted them the power of the Holy Spirit so that they would hold fast. That wasn't the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but he did, he, did, he did give them the Holy Spirit to grant that peace until the Spirit of God came in the way that he had been promised that would then infuse that peace in the life of those men and those who would come after. And I'll just pause here just a minute. Uh, I wonder uh, if we have that peace Or if we are afraid to proclaim to someone or to anyone, Christ was not fearful of death. He was not because he knew that it was necessary for your life and for the life of every other lost person and my life. And he wasn't fearful. And he's pointing to us not being fearful. Let's look at the motives in this text and try to move through these uh, pretty quickly. Why suffer? Well, following Christ is good. Following Christ is good because it brings blessings. Look back over in chapter 2, and we looked at these in in a different light, but I want to go back over there. Chapter 2 Peter writes in verse 20, uh, For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, uh, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, he is saying that there is great blessing in following Christ and therefore, that is a motive for us to follow Christ in this suffering. In fact, he, he pointed to it in verse 21 of that same chapter. He said, for to this you have been called, the Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And here Christ is an example. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. It is a good thing to follow Christ. In fact, Christ said, follow him. Isn't that what he said? He said, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. Peter points back again in chapter 4. He tells us that for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer. In other words, pursuing righteousness, abandoning ourselves in human passions, but living for the will of God. And this is a good thing because it brings tremendous blessing. Number two, following Christ in suffering is a means to destroy sin in our own life. Again, look back at what he has to say. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So consistent with the life of a believer is the eradication of the power of temptation in our lives. In other words, we, 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 I don't know, about, I, I, I struggle with temptation and I struggle with sin and I don't want to. And for those who are being sanctified in Christ, though we still sin, we don't want that. Peter is pointing to the fact that when it comes down to the end, I'm not running out there looking for a place to suffer, mind you, but the greatest place to find if sin is being defeated in our lives is when it comes to the place of our engagement, even engagement with the gospel and for the gospel's sake, most especially in the face of persecution and rejection. And that's his point. That's his point. In Hebrews chapter 12 you may want to turn there in verses 1 through 4. Um, this is a, Peter's writing to a group of people who are being persecuted, and there may have even been some dying and shedding blood. The author of Hebrews is writing to a different group of people who it is clear, at least from this statement, has, that has not yet come to them. But the point is being made of how specific this is. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, if you remember what precedes chapter 12 is chapter 11, uh, and it is this whole, uh, uh, the, the hall of faith, if you will, uh, talking about those who had lost life and limb and had suffered and been persecuted there at the end of the chapter. He says, therefore, since we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, those who have, who have gone before us in faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, because he, he's the one we're going to follow. You know, he's the one we're following, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
For who, who for the joy that was set before him, look again, did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, so that you can stand firm in the faith, looking to Jesus, looking to him. And then he says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, that hasn't happened, but the author of Hebrews was pointing them and pointing to them and saying, it hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. But for you to live out your faith to the end, enduring to the end, in other words, enduring to your death, may just require that. And I think the, the, the New Testament as a whole and even the Old Testament points to, while it hasn't happened yet, we need to be prepared for that to take place. Let's look at another motive that we see here in this text. Following Christ in suffering is good because it will help us to continue to put our past behind us. Our past often grips us, weakens us, and drags us down. But notice what, notice what Peter encourages. Verse 3, for the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, you have, you have turned away from the sin of the past. He's saying, don't go back. Don't go back. It's crippling. It's defeating. It ultimately will not help you to the end to go back. In other words, he is talking about enduring in repentance to continue to repent and don't go back. And he gives this list of sins, which I think are certainly are, are important. But the point that he is making is this is what the Gentiles' lifestyle looked like. But not only is it what the Gentiles' lifestyle looks like, it's not only is it what the lost lifestyle looks like, it's exactly what your lifestyle looked like, but Christ has saved you, and you have placed your faith and trust in him, don't go back. Don't look back. Don't go back to that. So following Christ and suffering is good because it will help us to continue to put our past behind us. Why will following him and suffering do that? It's because we will constantly be reminded that Christ suffered that sin might be put to death even in our own lives. The reason that Paul in writing in Romans chapter 6, do we sin because grace abounds? Do we sin because of the grace of God in Christ and his death and, and resurrection? Or somehow are we to be presumptuous of the grace of God? And the point that Paul was making and the point that Peter is making is, no, we don't go back. Let's look on a little bit deeper into the text. 
following Christ and suffering will help us live with judgment in mind. Will help us live with judgment in mind. Let's look on what it has to say. He said, with respect to this in verse 4, talking about with respect to the fact that you are no longer this way and they remain this way in their sin, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Just interject this so we understand what he's saying. He said, what happens is when you don't go back, they look at you like the stranger that you really are. They look at you like the stranger that you are. And then two, they are going to persecute you. They're going to malign you. They're going to seek to tear you down. You're you're following, but you're not going to go back. You're following Christ. You're moving ahead. Then notice what he says in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But they will give account to him, talking about God, they will give account to God who is prepared and ready to judge the living and the dead. Now as he's talking about, and the question now is, is he talking about everyone's judgment Because this judgment uh, is being talked about here. In fact, if you even look in verse 6 there for just a second. For this is why the gospel was preached to even those who are dead. And that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit of the way God does. Whose judgment is he talking about? Well, I think he has in mind at least a a, a full-orbed view of judgment. So for the believer... For the believer, we hear this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, which we appeal to oftentimes for dealing with matters in the body of Christ and dealing with matters as it pertains to what we would say would be church discipline, but basically just dealing with forgiveness is what's being talked about in Matthew 18. Jesus, after speaking with Peter and these questions are surfacing about forgiveness, uh, he points to them, points his disciples, and Peter specifically. Again, Peter was the one that brought it up, and so Peter's the one that's writing it here. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle. Settle the account. And then he begins to talk about settling the accounts of his servants. In other words, He's now turning to judge all the accounts of his servants. Not those who aren't his, but all the accounts of his servants. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, we do hear, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And Paul writes this, and this is for all. But the point here is this, is that it is good for us to follow Jesus in suffering for righteousness' sake, because it reminds us and helps us look at the judgment that will come. So I want you to picture this. Here's the value. Here's the value. The value for me as a believer is to look and know 
that all that I do in the course of that from then, from now to the end, uh, all of that will be looked at by God. And though I will not be judged and given the wrath of God, it does make a difference when I stand before God as I look to Him in regards to my obedience in being persecuted, being willing to deny self, and being willing to take up the cross. And that's huge because if we disassociate the judgment as a whole regarding that and the fact that we will all stand account and we will all answer to God, well then we have a judge that ultimately doesn't judge and though we know that we are spared the wrath of God, then we are tempted then to be presumptuous of the grace of God even in our living beyond that. Does that make sense? In other words, uh, well God's judging but he's not going to judge me. No, the believer is not going to bear the wrath of God. But I want you to think about it for just a moment. Do you as his son and daughter, if you are a believer, do you want to disappoint him? Do you want to disappoint him? I still, to date, I don't want to disappoint my daddy. And if my mama was living, I wouldn't want to disappoint her. Though I know I have, and though I know I did, but I don't want to. And the same is true when we recognize and look at God our Father as the judge, and ultimately the judgment will be given to Christ. But do we want to disappoint Christ? When He has suffered for us, do we want to disappoint Him? It does bring into bear the intimacy and the relationship that we have and the closeness of that relationship. But then there is now, keeping in view the judgment of those who are not believers, who are persecuting. Take a look at that for just a moment. Think about that for just a moment. In that we are willing to suffer, and it is good to follow Christ in suffering, knowing that all accounts are going to be settled by the one who ultimately is going to judge and will judge in righteousness. And so we are still living with judgment in view. That's the reason that we can walk and serve in humility. That's the reason that we can submit to an evil authority. That's the reason that we can go through hardship and difficulty and pray for those who are persecuting us. This past week, I referred to the conversation I had. Um, he said, well, what should we do? And, and, and I could tell that it was a, a militant spirit. I said, well, first, that we recognize that those who are maligning the value of God's Word and who He is we would have to know that they are lost. So how should I as a believer approach someone who is at that, at that kind of crossroads with God? I should long for their salvation and pray for their soul. I intercede for them. Number two, I did tell him this, and we dealt with this back a few weeks in our call to worship when we were looking at one of the imprecatory psalms. Can we pray for their lack of success and their prosperity in their movement. And I said, I believe that we can at the same time and should pray uh, that God 
by his power and according to his will, would put a stay on what they're doing. Squelch it. Whatever cost to them, squelch it. But I'm also concerned about their soul. And I said, number three, I said, we walk and live in a spirit of humility in this culture, not with a militant spirit. Not with a, I'm going to get you kind of spirit. And, and I take a good example of that is that when Christ was being arrested, Peter's first response was to do what? Weld a sword and start chopping off ears and heads and whatever got in the way. And in that militant spirit, that would be exactly what we would do. And then Christ said, no, put the ear back on. This is what is necessary for redemption. And in humility walked in that way. So I said, we need to operate here in a spirit of humility that ultimately will bring us to a place. And I appealed back to chapter 3. Will ultimately bring us to a place to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. Makes sense? It does. Against our nature, against our nature apart from Christ, it is very much against our nature. But there is the understanding that God will settle all of those things. Look, uh, if you will, in chapter 2 and verse 22, and I appeal back to this because Christ set the example for us in giving attention to a view of judgment here that is necessary for our witness and testimony uh, in this world. He said, verse 22, he committed, speaking of Christ, no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Isn't it enough? Shouldn't it be enough for us to know that God is going to deal with those things in eternity and he will deal with them rightly? Which points me all the way back to Psalm 56. It's when I have suffered and I have wept in the midst of my suffering for righteousness' sake, that God has captured every tear, and He remembers every wrong. And not that I am hoping for the judgment on someone. I simply know that God has not forgotten a thing, and He will deal with it the way that He knows it needs to be dealt with. And then finally... Following Christ in suffering is good for the gospel, and thus it's good for eternal life. Let's look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. And, and he says, he's, he's coming out of talking about this judgment and what we just said for this reason, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, in other words, though persecuted, though judged in the flesh, 
while they are here, though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Okay, so back, back up, chapter 3. Revisit this again, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. All the while, fulfilling the will of God. All the while, the goal was to fulfill the will of God. Now, look at what we hear. And so, the gospel has bearing in this case... In verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached. In other words, this is why the gospel was preached to them before they died, when they were in sin, they trusted Christ, and even in their suffering today, though they faced the judgment of, these, of those persecutors, just like Christ faced the judgment of his persecutors, it seems to be pointing to the fact that it's okay. Why? Because in their hearing the gospel and in their faith and repentance and trusting in him that they now live in the spirit the way God does. So following Christ in suffering is good for the gospel, thus for eternal life. So where does that leave us today? Well, it leaves us at this point. Are we following Christ? If we are professing Christ, are we following Christ? Are we following Christ and are we and will we continue to follow Christ until the end, even in the face of persecution? You say, well, I don't know yet. I know you don't know what is coming yet. But that is the reason that Peter said, arm yourself with this thinking. In other words, get prepared and think in advance. Get prepared and commit in advance. Get prepared and just say in your commitment, I will take up his cross and I will follow him. And I will lean into his grace. And I will lean into his strength. And I will lean into him with my life. And trust that he will give me everything that I need. Every time. And in every way to fulfill the will of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful today that uh, you have encouraged me in this word and you have challenged me. And my prayer has been, Father, that we would recognize uh, the truth uh, that we need to be armed ahead of time and be prepared ahead of time, committing to you that we will follow you at all costs.
no matter what. And Father, I trust in you and rely on you to bring that about for me and for each of us here. Because Christ did, we can. Because your grace has spoken to us and called us out of light into darkness. Because we had a past that we turned away from and we have looked ahead for the future. Because we long to accomplish your will and see the nations come to glorify you. Father, help us not to wane in this. But even as a church, God, embrace even now this community, these neighborhoods, our own and our own families to the end of seeing them come to know you. And even in the midst of rejection, God, we rest in you as individuals and as a church and as a people who claim your name. And in that, Father, we recognize that we should be like you in that way, holding on to your will and holding on to the work of redemption and working it. Help us in this in Christ. Amen.